When life rattles us, when life shakes us, what spills out is the stuff that's been brewing underneath the surface all along. A lot of times we talk about difficult circumstances and we'll say, this is what this problem did to me. This is what this person did to me. This is who they made me. This is how it changed me in this way. And sometimes, rarely, that is true. But more often than not, that circumstance simply revealed what was going on underneath the surface all along. As we approach the book of Daniel Beginning this morning, we encounter a teenage young man. When we think of a teenager, we usually think of a high school student. I'd encourage you to think more of a young adult. Uh, they, uh, at this time in history, they did not delay adulthood as long as we do. And so think of a young adult, but he's a teenager. And life rattles him. And what comes out is a foundation that was late in his life as a young Jewish man, Skip Heitzig, as he was beginning to speak through the book of Daniel, he started off by quoting a verse from Exodus. And I thought to myself, that's a weird way uh, for him to begin, rather in, in Deuteronomy, right before the Exodus of God's people. It's the very end of Moses' life. And if, if you are familiar with, with the Bible a lot, you know that in Deuteronomy he speaks uh, kind of a benediction over each of the 12 tribes. And then he ends with this kind of one blanket statement that he's speaking. And he says this in Deuteronomy chapter th- uh, 33, verse 27. The eternal God is your dwelling place. When you think about so much of the life and history of God's people in that moment was about getting to the promised land which is good for them in that moment, right? But he's saying for everyone who believes in the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, he's saying this God is our dwelling place, whatever our zip code might be. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath that dwelling place are the everlasting arms. If you grew up in the traditional church, you know the hymn, Leaning, on the everlasting arms, right? There's one of those on leaning, 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 leaning on the everlasting arms. Anybody with me? Did you grow up hearing that hymn? Yes. Some of those same people who are like, I don't like that modern worship song. It just repeats stuff. Let's sing leaning, 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 still leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. <laughs> But this verse is like, no, 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 we're not leading. We're literally building our lives on those arms. It's way more than a crutch. It's our whole foundation. Our dwelling place rests in the eternal, everlasting arms of God. And and so I want that to kind of be a a lens through which I, I think as Daniel's being rattled by life, this is spilling out of him. He would have had this memorized. I think this spilled out of his heart because we see that the people he influences in his life end up saying this same idea. The story that if you grew up in Sunday school, you're familiar with Daniel in the lion's den. 
King Darius finds Daniel alive. We'll get to that story in several weeks. And in Daniel chapter 6, verses 26 and 27, he says, I decree that everyone throughout my small K, lowercase k, kingdom should tremble and fear before the capital K king, the God of Daniel. For he's the living God. He will endure forever, the eternal God. His kingdom will never be destroyed. His rule will never end. He delivers and rescues and works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. The eternal God is our dwelling place. And this, those set of ideas, those set of declarations will kind of serve for us as the foundation that we hope will spill out over the next couple months as we move through the book of Daniel. So grab your Bible if you would this morning. If you don't have one, there's one underneath the seat in front of you, and uh, we're going to invite you to join with us in saying our creed together before we dive into the book of Daniel. So please, let's hold up our Bibles, and let's say this with some conviction this morning. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Please turn to Daniel chapter 1. If you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you, uh, it's page 690. Daniel chapter 1. And here's the thing about this series. We're not going to move nearly as slowly as we did through the book of Acts. This will not be a 15-month series. But we're still going to move a lot faster than I wish we did. Uh, God willing, we are going to finish chapter 1 today. Before we read it, I want you to notice that we're reading through two different perspectives. The very beginning of this book. Both perspective is real. And both of the perspectives matter a lot for how we interpret life. Okay? So I want you to notice there's there's two perspectives. Viewpoint number one, human history. Viewpoint number two, the story of God. Verse number one, in the year, the third year, Of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Human history. Those are historical facts. If you study uh, books from antiquity, they will reconfirm this to be historically accurate. As a matter of fact, people whose mission in life is to disprove the reliability of the Bible really struggle with the book of Daniel. We're not going to focus a whole lot on that in this series, but let me just tell you, the things that Daniel prophesied would happen, happened so accurately that people have spent great effort, money, and research to say this had to be written after the fact. And yet again and again, that research has shown that this was written before those events. People struggle with the the accuracy and reliability And I think the reason that the Bible lists names and places and dates is so that we can trust the authority and the accuracy of God's word. God gives us the names of kings, the time of kingdoms, places and nations so that we can trust him. This story takes place in what we would call today Iraq. Interesting, in modern history, if if you're a young person today, the name Saddam Hussein probably doesn't evoke the same emotions from you that it does those of us who are my age or older. 
Saddam Hussein wreaked a lot of havoc on planet Earth, not just in the Middle East. He saw himself as a reincarnation of King Nebuchadnezzar. His mission was not just to rule the world. His mission was to reestablish Babylon. He spent millions of dollars trying to rebuild a modern-day Babylon. And what's interesting, after his regime was toppled, if you visit Iraq today, you can visit Saddam Hussein's former palace that stands abandoned and in ruins because that's what happens every time we try to establish a kingdom that would overthrow the kingdom of God. Kingdoms come and go, but the eternal God is our dwelling place. And underneath the everlasting arms, the the God of the Bible is the living God. He will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. His rule will never end. That's the viewpoint of human history when it meets the viewpoint of biblical theology. The story of God. Some people have said, and this is maybe a little too cheesy for you, but there's both history and there's his story. And I love the fact that both are true. And both are being written in this story because verse 2 says, and the Lord. So he's not telling something different that happened. This is the same thing, but he says, and. So it's both true that King Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem. It's also true that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. This was the Lord's doing. And not just King Jehoiakim, but the vessels of the house of God brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. That is biblical theology. King Jehoiakim was the 19th king of Judah after King David and consistently was against the heart of God. Continued to lead God's people away from following God. And God continued to warn Israel, if you reject me, if you disobey me, you're going to be carried into exile. And in 605 BC, God's warning that was rejected proved true. They were carried into exile. And I just have to say, this is not the heart of the message this morning. But if you're here today and you think you can continue to reject God, you can continue to ignore that check in your spirit that is saying you had better be careful the road you were going down. Listen to me. Let this little glimpse be a warning to us this morning. When we reject the warning signs of God, we are placing ourselves in a dangerous position. And I don't know who that's for today, but I love you enough to say, Don't reject the warnings of God. Human history and the story of God. Throughout the book of Daniel, we see these two uh, interlap with each other and the perspectives kind of change. We're just seeing historical facts and then we're seeing what God's doing in the moment. This is a story, a moment in history that reveals the story of all stories. The story that's still being written today, the story of a sovereign God. Todd Wilson brilliantly pointed out the fact that this is called the book of Daniel, but this is not ultimately the story of Daniel. This is a lengthy quote, but I want you to hang with me. This is so good. He said, the book of Daniel is a favorite for Sunday school teachers and students alike for good reason. There's all the makings of a great story, memorable characters, cliffhanger drama, science fiction-like visions, 
He said it's like Harry Potter meets Lord of the Rings with a dash of Star Wars thrown in. And then he said this, therein lies a potential danger. Because the human actors and events are so fascinating, we are tempted when studying this book to fix our gaze on the human plane. But when that happens, we can inadvertently lose sight of the fact that this book is ultimately not about Daniel or his three friends, but about our God and his unstoppable victory in the world. Sure, the book of Daniel tells Daniel's story, and a fascinating story it is. But the main purpose of Daniel is to reveal to us who God is, his character, his purposes, his way of working in the world for the good of his people. So the main lesson of Daniel is not, as maybe you've heard before, dare to be a Daniel. I heard preachers say that a lot growing up. There's even, I think, a song. Dare to be a Daniel. No offense if you've ever taught that. That is not the message of this book. I believe the message of this book is not dare to be a Daniel. It is dare to trust in Daniel's God. The story of Daniel is the story of God and his eternal victory in the world that cannot be stopped. This is not just the story of Daniel. This is also not... A book about end times. And some of you are disappointed to hear that. And some of you are thrilled to hear that. There will be no charts. There will be no graphs. In this series. But I will say this. When I look around the world today. I don't see a lot of horizontal reasons for hope. When I look into the hearts of the next generation. I see them hungry for hope that they can't find when they look to their left and their right. The only hope for this world is that Jesus is coming again to make everything that is wrong right. That is what we wait for. That is what we long for. That is what we are looking for. And this book will reinforce that that's still true. And that is still where our hope is found. This is not ultimately about Daniel. This is not ultimately about end times facts. And this is most certainly not a book about American politics. We are coming up on an election year. Whether you're happy about that. Or whether you're sad about that. Or whether you just wish it would all go away. I love what one pastor said. He said, our hope and prayer and goal in opening up the book of Daniel, listen, is not to pull us left or right, but to pull us up and allow us to see all of human history and nations and kings and kingdoms and elections and politicians from the perspective of this. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he alone is our hope. That's what this book is about. Two perspectives, human history and the story of God. And the setting of the story is Babylon. And here's why that matters. Because Babylon can sound like a world away and a generation away. And yet it's incredibly relevant for today. There's two perspectives of this story. There's also two perspectives of Babylon. That is human history and the story of God. In human history, I said this modern-day Iraq, this specific kingdom, 6th century B.C., 
But Babylon is also, the other perspective is, Babylon is an idea. Babylon is what we would call a worldview. Babylon is a force of darkness. Babylon is an invisible kingdom that has always been seeking to take territory away from the kingdom of God. Opposed to the kingdom of God. And opposed to the story of God. The New Testament writers referred to Rome as Babylon. Even though it had nothing to do with Babylon. was nowhere near Babylon. No political connection to Babylon. They were referring to an idea. In the book of Revelation, John the Revelator talks about Babylon as the entire world system that's opposed to Jesus. He doesn't mean 6th century Babylon. When the theologians known as the Rolling Stones named their album Bridges to Babylon, they were not talking about a time machine back to a historical kingdom. They were talking about a bridge to a certain way of seeing the world. There's a movie that recently came out called Babylon. I've not seen it. But people in Hollywood said it was raunchy. So I'm not really sure how raunchy you have to be when Hollywood thinks it's raunchy. But then maybe it's an accurate depiction of the idea or the ideology of Babylon. It is an ancient story about an ancient man in an ancient culture and an ancient nation called Babylon. But this is also the story of a modern day spirit, a demonic counterfeit to the kingdom of God. And it is at work in our world today. It is at work in our marriages today. It is at work in our homes today. It is at work in our workplaces today. Because whatever God creates, there is an enemy who seeks to create a counterfeit. So Daniel's not just a past tense book about what happened a long time ago. It's what always happens. There is always going to be conflict between the kingdom of God and the spirit that is seeking to establish the kingdom of Babylon. But there's coming a day when that kingdom will finally be conquered by the king. The spirit of Babylon today is seeking to take over every single sphere of our society in the world. Babylon is trying to redefine sexuality and morality and philosophy and education and parenting and gender and politics. Trying to bring about a counterfeit kingdom that is opposed to the kingdom of God. We are at war, whether we want to be or not. So it mentions Shinar, this place where this temple has been set up here in Babylon. But we we read about that same place in Genesis chapter 11. And in that story in Genesis chapter 11, we get a good snapshot of what the picture is. Or ideology of Babylon is. They tried to build a tower where they could commune with the gods. Mankind was so arrogant to think they belonged in the company of the gods. They built the tower of Babel, Babylon. This is that same place, but way more than that, this is that same idea. So that's the two perspectives of who Babylon is. The question is, how does Babylon do its job? And now we're going to pick up pace. You're like, that was only two verses. We're going to pick up the speed. 
how does Babylon seek to influence the world? Babylon demands conformity. Babylon might promote tolerance, but really it demands conformity to its worldview. I want you to see what happens. Verse 3. The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel. Eventually everyone else would come. But first, bring some of the people of Israel, of the royal family and of nobility. Youths, by the way, Babylon is always trying to reach the next generation, sometimes far more adequately than the church is. We're just going to let that sit there for a minute. Youths without blemish of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace, to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate. So we're going we're to make sure that young people have an ideology and that they enjoy the affluence that comes along with it. The stuff. The good stuff. Daily portion of the food the king ate or the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. The chief eunuch gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. We're going to read more about these people as we move forward, but right now it's not about their story. I want us to see how Babylon does its job. Skip Heitzig brilliantly said, we see here a four-phased strategy that Babylon still is seeking to implement today. Quickly, number one is isolation. Notice that, that King Nebuchadnezzar says, pull the youth away from everyone else. Babylon's always trying to disconnect us from each other. Babylon wants us to be in an echo chamber and away from those who believe in a biblical worldview. Number one is isolation, and then number two is indoctrination. They were basically going to a three-year master's level graduate school training of the worldview of Babylon. And many of our students here from Temple Christian School graduate and go to a secular college, and we should really just tell them, welcome to Babylon University. When they describe to us what they're encountering on these campuses, it's not new thought. It is not cutting edge. It's 6th century Babylon repeating itself. Number three, concession. If we can isolate you and indoctrinate you, we will force you to concede the things you used to value. Slowly, one by one, piece by piece, gradually. Just eat the king's meat. Drink the king's wine. It's not really defying your Hebraic laws. Which always results in number four, confusion. Isolation, indoctrination, concession, and the end result is confusion. They changed their names so that they didn't even know who they were anymore. If that does not sound like modern culture, we don't even know who we are or what we are. Creating confusion. Really quickly, um, I want you to notice the way that they changed their names here. Because they were changed from Hebrew names to Aramaic names, we really know what these Hebrew names meant. There was great meaning in a Hebrew name. There's not as much clarity among scholars of exactly what the 
Aramaic names meant. So if you uh, study this, you can find some different versions of this. I tried to kind of take the most generic of the most trusted definitions of their new names. But we know that the name Daniel means God, El, Elohim. God is my judge. Daniel was raised to know what throne he would actually stand in front of at the end of the day. Come on, somebody. Oh. Like he, he's, he's like, oh, you want me to do all this to stand before his throne? Pfft. Do you know my name? I know what throne I'm really going to stand in front of one day. But his name is changed to Baal protects the king. Instead of what throne will I be accountable to, what God can I control so that he'll protect me? Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious. What a great name. His name's changed to under the rule or under the command or subordinate to, we think, Aku, the moon god. So instead of dwelling in the grace of God, I'm now just a a slave of the moon God. Mishael means there is none like God. There's none like Elohim. Another really good name, right? Meshach means there's none like Aku, the moon God. We can just hijack your whole worldview in a subtle little way. Azariah, God has helped me. Mm. Abednego, I serve Nebo, which we think is the Babylonian god of wisdom. Instead of, God has helped me, we're going to change your name to, I got to help you. Right? I got to serve you. But here's the thing. Those subtle differences that result in confusion and not knowing who we are and trying to isolate us, trying to indoctrinate us, that idea of Babylon, I just want to acknowledge here today, that's the world that most of you work in at least five days a week. I just want to acknowledge that there's a few of us here uh, who are privileged to serve the Lord together in a, in a biblical worldview here on this campus, pastoral staff and our school staff and our Temple Days team here today. But most of you, I just want to acknowledge... You just get a taste of non-Babylon when we're together a few times a day. And God willing, you're building homes that speak a different language than Babylonian indoctrination. (laughs) I want to acknowledge that, that this is difficult. And that's why I think this book can be so helpful for us. Is This is the story of how God's at work in the middle of a counterculture. And so that's not just an ancient issue. That is where we're striving today. And here's why that matters. Babylon might be where we work. And Babylon might be where we live. But Babylon isn't home. The eternal God is our dwelling place. How do we respond to living in Babylon? How do we respond to living in Babylon? What does faithfulness to God look like in a totally secular, lowercase kingdom, controlled by powers at war with the God of the gospel? I don't know that there's any better book in the Old Testament that presents us with more modern help 
for thinking about the relationship between Christ and culture than the book of Daniel. This, we would say today, prisoner of war. He was a victim of human trafficking. He's forced to walk as a teenager 700 miles from home. Which, by the way, is another reminder that we live in a world where innocent people do suffer. But verse number 8, Daniel resolved, while in Babylon, he resolved he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself. He believed, I'm going to be Babylonian enough, I can't reject the dietary restrictions of my faith. So he asked the guy in charge, can I please have something different to eat? And I, I just want to say, for all of the moms in the room, is there anything more frustrating than when your teenagers don't want to eat the food that you've prepared for them? Right? We just want to acknowledge that. Like, here's, here's God's word just speaking to you today. Verse number 9, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. That's usually not what happens when you say, I want something different to eat than what you prepared. Usually God does not give you compassion and grace. But the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, who has signed your food and drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. And we say that kind of thing like, oh, he's going to lose his head. No, he actually means... (laughs) You're endangering the thing attached to the rest of my body, going to get chopped off. Like, you're putting my life at risk with your dietary concerns that he probably didn't even understand. He'd probably not even been exposed to the Jewish dietary restrictions. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs of the sign over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Gross. Then, amen, I got one amen. Then, let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed. Deal with your servants according to what you see. So you listened to them in this matter, tested them for 10 days. Verse 15, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance. And I just want to say, can we just slow down in the word this morning? Church, notice that God's word, we just said the Bible is the word of God, right? Amen. The word of God says that better in appearance is fatter in flesh. (laughs) Come on. That's funny. Okay. Fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now, hard pause. This is not a biblical mandate for the latest trend of a diet. Please, for the love of mercy, do not believe that this is some supernaturally blessed keto Jesus juice. Okay? There's literally books written about this that try to make this a very spiritual thing. And I just got to say, you can follow this diet if you would like to. You can even do it for 10 days as some kind of symbolic thing. Knock yourself out. But if you start selling this like essential oils, we can't be friends anymore. I saw a meme this week that said the Bible only mentions vegetables 13 times. The Bible mentions meat 290 times. 
We should eat biblically. We should eat 290 times more meat than we do for every 13 vegetables. Praise the Lord. Okay. Barbecue is more biblical. Eh, Whatever. Okay. Verse 17, as for these youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. We're going to talk a lot about that over the next couple of weeks. At the end of the time when the king commanded they should be brought in, so the end of three years, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They stood before the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. I'm not sure how they found out that math. I don't know who was keeping score. Daniel was there till the first year of King Cyrus. Here's, here's what I, I don't want us to miss in, in this story, and specifically the, the boldness in not defiling themselves with the king's food and drink. I want you to hear this. This is so good. I, uh, I, I, I read um, uh, J.D. Greer who said this. This is the story. We can't make a difference unless we're actually different. We can't make a difference unless we're different. Last week, I had the privilege of preaching in Ireland with our missionary partners, the Slaters. And let me just say, having put eyes on what they've been pouring their lives into, they are killing it for the kingdom of God. And uh, we're so honored to partner with them uh, but I preached there uh, to their youth, and then on Sunday morning, and after one of the sessions I preached to their youth, John Slater got up and he said, hey, what do I tell you all the time about what call, God calls us to be? God calls us to be a weird Jesus kid. That's what he said. I was like, that's, that's great. Now, let me say this about being a weird Jesus kid, about God calling us to be different. I don't mean being a weirdo. Come on. There's a difference between being weird compared to the culture and just being a weirdo, right? All of us grew up in churches. Maybe you're in one today where you're like, no, that person's a weirdo for Jesus, not just different, right? You know what I'm saying? Right? When I grew up, I felt like the goal was we want to be as awkward as possible and people will just flock to our faith. That's not what he's saying. I think what he is saying is if we truly claim that we belong to a different kingdom, then our life should match the value system of a different kingdom. If we're truly going to make a difference, people will see that we do not compromise our integrity based on what they think we should or should not do. We will not conform to the culture. We will seek to conform to the scriptures. If we say we belong to this kingdom. St. Augustine said the followers of Jesus are most distinguishable from the world in their attitude towards three things. The big three. Money, sex, and power. The followers of Jesus are most distinguishable, supposed to be, most distinguishable from the world in their attitude towards money, sex, and power. I want you to hear this. Here's Babylon's approach to money. You ready? Babylon's approach to money is consume it. Get as much as you can. Keep as much as you can. If you have to give away a little bit so that you look like you're a good person, then give away a little bit. But money is everything. It is the key to the good life. 
for the follower of Jesus, we say, God is my treasure. (laughs) My faith is in him, not my resources. I'm not primarily a consumer. I'm a steward. And so money for us is not just what, how much can I live off of? It's what can God accomplish through me to advance his kingdom? Again, quoting back from, from J.D. Greer again, at their church, Summit Church in North Carolina, they frequently talk about sufficient and extravagant. Living and giving, sufficient or extravagant. Here's the question. Do we live sufficiently so that we can give extravagantly? Or do we give sufficiently so that we can live extravagantly? One is the spirit of Babylon. And one is the spirit of the kingdom of God. So back to Augustine again. What distinguishes us? Money, sex, and power. Here's Babylon's approach to sex. You ready for this? To consume. To get as much as you can. I I love what Tim Keller says here. This is so good. Like we could park on this for a really long time, but I'm running out of time this morning. Maybe take a picture of this and marinate on this later. Tim Keller said this, the early church was strikingly different than the culture around it in this way. The Romans were guarded with their money and promiscuous with their beds. While the early Christians were promiscuous with their means, with their money, and guarded with their beds. Come on, that's good. Like, when Babylon looks at us, (laughs) do they say, man, they're really guarded with their beds and they're really generous with their funds? What an incredible contrast. So back to Augustine, the distinguishing marks, money, sex, and power. You'll never guess what I'm going to say next. The Babylonian approach to power is to consume it. It's to get as much as you can and to cling to it and to hold on to it. Whatever advantage you have, press into that so that you can have more power. But for the followers of Jesus, we watched him give away power. We watched him empower the most marginalized. The most silenced and the most outcast. He readily and freely gave away privilege and power to those around him. And so I would say this specifically to the young adults in our congregation. If you're making decisions today about the career that you will have one day. To know will it be powerful enough? Will I make enough money? I would just submit to you there's a better question. God, how will you advance your kingdom through me and my little career? What do you want for my future? How does it play a story to oppose Babylon for the eternal, unshakable kingdom of God? You might not be called to ministry. I'm not talking about becoming a missionary. But you are called to this kingdom. The question is just, is that supposed to be from a cubicle or a classroom or manufacturing line? 
We're called to serve just where. Now, if that's for young adults, let me flip the script and say, if you are in retirement or nearing retirement or planning towards retirement, I would just challenge you with this. The single largest, fastest growing demographic of missionaries being launched out into the world today are people who are post-career. That's a really nice way of saying old. They retired and said, instead of growing old on a beach and living for me, I'm going to leverage this season where I have some more freedom investing in the kingdom of God around the world. The fastest growing missionary demographic today are people over the age of 65. And sometimes they're going to places where there's a younger couple that's going to be there for a long time. And all they're doing is saying, I'm going to come spend five years just loving on your kids, trying to encourage you. I would be thrilled that we would have people in this congregation who would say, hey, we finally reached retirement age. We're not buying a mountain home in Colorado. We're not buying a condo on the beach. We're going to go to a difficult place to love on a young couple who's advancing the kingdom of God in the midst of their Babylon. That is how we distinguish ourselves from Babylon. Money and sex and power. As a church, it means that we lovingly dig our heels in against the shifts of Babylon that are making its way into the American church. We are watching the American church shift its views on sexuality and gender and marriage to conform to Babylon. And today is a day for the church of Jesus Christ to say, Babylon has taken enough territory. I, there's a church planner in New York named John Tyson. I, I love this guy's stuff. He has a book called A Beautiful Resistance. That's what he calls the church. A beautiful resistance. Not a hateful, aggressive, ignorant resistance, but a resistance. And John Tyson wrote the book A Beautiful Resistance after studying the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed for being part of a plot to execute Hitler in the name of Jesus. Bonhoeffer came to faith in Jesus, was an influencer for Jesus, and believed that the Nazi regime was satanic. He believed it was Babylonian. The year that this church was planted, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was martyred. Before he lost his life, and as he was growing in his faith, the group of believers that he was a part of gave him a little dilapidated building on a piece of property so that he could train pastors. Obviously, the church at this time in Nazi Germany was not building steeples. He was in secret training pastors who, in an underground seminary who would go plant underground churches throughout Nazi Germany. Sounds like a pretty courageous thing to do. His little dilapidated building where he's training pastors to abide with the presence of God. As he was doing life there, his historic book, The Cost of Discipleship, was really actually being fleshed out. He wrote the book based on what he experienced in that underground seminary. During his time there at that little place, a friend of his came to visit him, a lifelong friend. That lifelong friend came to visit him because he'd heard chatter and rumor about what Bonhoeffer was doing with his life. And he thought this can't be true. 
I don't, I don't remember this about Bonhoeffer's life, but recently listening to John Tyson talk about this, he grew up very privileged in an elite home, finest of education and an extremely wealthy upbringing. This friend was from the same kind of elite upbringing. He came to visit Bonhoeffer and just watched everything that was going on. And after observing it for long enough, he pulled Bonhoeffer off to the side and told him, you have got to calm down. He said, you are way too spiritual and way too intense and it is undignified. He told him, quote, this is unbecoming for an elite. The story's told that Bonhoeffer told his friend, I want to show you something. They got in a little boat. Bonhoeffer rode across the body of water. They got out of the boat, walked up on a hill. This hill overlooked an airfield that Hitler had taken over and turned into a training ground. They stood there seeing the expanse of Hitler's strategy to overtake the world. Planes are Hitler's planes are landing and taking off from this airstrip and a massive sea of Hitler's troops are in formation and learning how to do all the things. It's this incredible, grand, organized, strategic view. And Bonhoeffer looked his friend in the eye and pointed back across the water to that little dilapidated shack and he said, this must be stronger than that. And I stand before you this morning, church, to say this must be stronger than Babylon. Our distinguishable faith in the midst of a counter culture must be so deeply rooted in truth that it is stronger than those who are opposed to the kingdom of God. This must be stronger than that. The story is told that Bonhoeffer and his friend rode back across the water in complete silence. This morning, the challenge is do we see Babylon for what it is? And are we growing in the spiritual disciplines of strengthening the, the relationship with the kingdom we actually belong to? The eternal God is our dwelling place. Is he taking more territory of our hearts as we lovingly, beautifully push back against Babylon? This is the hope of the world today. And this must be stronger than